We are making our way through the Ten Commandments, and uh, this morning we have come to the Eighth Commandment, which states, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. It's a simple commandment, but it's also amazing how creative people can be in breaking it. Three college freshmen and three college seniors were traveling home for the Thanksgiving break. At the train station, the three freshmen bought tickets for themselves and watched as the seniors bought just one ticket. One of the freshmen asked, how are you three going to travel on only one ticket? Watch and learn, answered one of the seniors. They all boarded the train. The three freshmen took their seats as all three seniors crammed into a bathroom together and closed the door. You picturing this? Okay. Shortly after the train departed, the conductor came around collecting tickets. He knocked on the bathroom door and said, Ticket, please. The door opened just a crack. Just a crack. And a single arm emerged with a ticket in hand. The conductor took it and moved on. You following? The freshman observed this and agreed it was a clever idea. They decided to do the same thing on the return trip and save some money. When they got to the train station a few days later, they bought a single ticket for the return trip. The seniors were also there. And they didn't buy a ticket at all. Perplexed, one of the freshmen asked, How are you going to travel without a ticket? Watch and learn, answered the senior. When they boarded the train, the three seniors crammed into one bathroom and the three freshmen crammed into another across the aisle. Shortly after the train was on its way, one of the seniors left their bathroom and walked to the bathroom the freshmen were hiding in. He knocked on the door and said, Please. <laughs> Did you get that right? Okay. <laughs> when it comes to the to the eighth commandment, <laughs> there is no end to the ways we can violate it. 
In Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, God tells his people, you shall not steal. This is a straightforward commandment with only four words, which simply means don't take what doesn't belong to you or don't withhold Something that rightly belongs to another. And like most of the commandments we have looked at, take murder and adultery, for example, there might be the tendency to think that this commandment does not apply to us. Because there are no thieves here. But just as we have already seen with the previous commandments, don't be so sure. Now to introduce this this eighth commandment, I want to take us way back into the Old Testament. To Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. And before we we dive into this story, I need to set it up for you. Joshua 7. The Israelites, now led by Joshua, have just defeated the main Canaanite stronghold of Jericho. It was a huge victory for the Israelites. Everything happened just like God said it would happen. They were full of confidence and their great victory sent ripples and fear throughout the land. We're told in Joshua chapter 6, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua. And his fame spread throughout the land. That's a very reassuring and a very powerful statement. That's like Romans 8. 31, where the Apostle Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The Lord was with Joshua. So after reading a passage like that, no one would expect the story that follows. So let's start with verse 2. Joshua 7, verse 2. And we are told, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. 
they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. After their great victory over Jericho, Joshua sent spies about 10 miles up a mountain pass to the northwest to check out the town of Ai. Ai looked like a small town compared to the city of Jericho. The spies didn't even see a McDonald's or a Starbucks. That's how small it was. And they returned and essentially told Joshua, we don't need to send the entire army this time. Let's just send in the junior varsity. They got this. Without consulting the Lord and seeking His guidance... Without any prayer, Joshua assumed that God was pleased with his people and would give them another victory. So Joshua gave the orders to go against the people of Ai. Surely, this is going to be A cakewalk for Israel. A sure victory. It's a slam dunk. Let's continue with verses 4 and 5. So, about 3,000 men from the people went up there. And they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Okay, well, so much for the cakewalk. Not much of a cakewalk. What should have been an easy victory for the Israelites turned into a complete disaster as they ran for their lives with their tails between their legs, losing 36 soldiers in the process. How in the world could this have happened. They walked on the floor of the Red Sea. Right? They crossed the Jordan River at flood stage. They just defeated the mighty city of Jericho. But they are struck down by the men at Ai. How did this happen? 
when the word of this shocking defeat reached Joshua, this is how he responded beginning in verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord. Until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it. And they will surround us and cut cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Let's stop there. Joshua is beside himself. He's devastated. He's humbled. Something had gone terribly wrong. And now Joshua is second guessing himself as a leader. And he's questioning And even blaming God. Oh Lord God. Why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites. To destroy us. He's sounding like the unbelieving Jews at the Red Sea who saw the Egyptians coming and they said, Oh, if we had only stayed where we were in Egypt. God had promised to be with them wherever they went. In fact, they had the Ark of the Covenant that reminded them of God's presence in their midst. But based on this experience at Ai, for some unknown reason, it would seem on the surface that God was not present with them as He had promised and had changed His plans for His people. Let's continue with verse 10 and see what's really going on. We are told, So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed My covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. 
Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken from the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. Let's stop. Joshua had blamed God for their defeat. But now he learns the surprising truth. Their defeat at Ai was the result of sin at Jericho. God hadn't broken his promise. It wasn't God's fault that they were defeated. It was their own. Before their attack on Jericho, the Israelites were banned and warned not to take any of the loot and plunder for themselves. It was God's will that they were to bring all the precious metals to the treasury to be devoted to the Lord. And everything else was to be burned. And of the thousands of soldiers involved in the attack on Jericho, only one man violated the ban. And the whole nation suffered the consequences. All of Israel suffered because God considered Israel as one person in the Lord. Just as we are called one body in Christ. We belong to each other. We need each other. We affect each other. And just as the Apostle Paul would later say, if one member suffers, what? All members suffer. So God takes his people through this methodical, investigative process that starts with the tribes, 
then whittles down to the clans, and then to the families. I suspect that this this long process prompted the people to search their own hearts for sin. And it would certainly impress on the people the seriousness of disobeying God. And furthermore, it would remind the people that nothing is hidden from God. He sees it all. Well, as the story continues, Achan, whose name means trouble, what a name, (laughs) it means trouble, is singled out. And it is revealed that he had taken a beautiful robe, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold from Jericho after he had clearly been warned not to do so. During the long investigative process, Achan could have come forward to confess his sin and maybe even received a pardon. But he did not. It was only when Achan was exposed that he confessed to the theft and as punishment. Achan, his sons and daughters, his cattle, his donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he possessed was destroyed. Everything. We can only conclude by this that the family had also been aware of Achan's sin and most likely helped him hide it. So Achan wanted more. Achan wanted more and he took what did not belong to him. He valued wealth more than his commitment to the Lord. He stole things that had been dedicated and devoted to God. And then he tried to cover it up. But his sin was exposed for all to see. And tragically, he and several others paid for his sin with their very lives. Achan violated the eighth commandment. Do not steal. There is an old mountain saying in North Carolina that goes like this. What's in the well comes up in the bucket. Have you heard that? It's because this is Washington, not North Carolina. (laughs) What's in the well comes up in the bucket. And that means that whatever is in a person's heart will eventually come out in their words and in their actions. And that most definitely applies to the eighth commandment. 
and to explore this truth just a little further. As I have done in our in the previous messages regarding the Ten Commandments, I want to take us once more to the Sermon on the Mount. This time beginning with Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Matthew 6, 24. I'll give you a moment. Matthew 6, verse 24. This is a great verse. Are you there? Okay. This is Jesus speaking. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus says... That no one can serve two masters. And just for clarification, that's not like working two jobs. What Jesus had in mind here was the master-slave relationship. Okay? The master-slave relationship. And in that context, no slave could have two masters. For each master would claim the slave as his property. You can only have one master. And in his teaching, Jesus identified two who are competing to be the one. The one you love. The one you are devoted to. The one you desire. That being God and wealth. The Greek word for wealth is mammon. Which refers to money and property and possessions. God and wealth are competing to be your master. And they are going in two different directions. God commands us to walk by faith, to trust Him to provide, whereas wealth tempts us to walk by sight and to trust in the accumulation of stuff. God calls us to set our minds on His kingdom and on the things above, which are eternal. But wealth leads us to set our minds on the things below, on the things of this earth, which will fade away. God and wealth are competing 
for us. And Jesus tells us that we will love one and hate the other. We will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Isn't that a strange contrast made by Jesus? You cannot serve God and wealth. Think about that for a moment. Why didn't Jesus say you cannot serve God and Satan? Why didn't Jesus say you cannot you cannot serve God and yourself? That seems more reasonable to me. It surely seems more spiritual to me. But instead he sir he says you cannot serve God and wealth. And here's why. Let's back up a bit to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. Just a few verses up. Matthew 6, verse 19 through 21, where Jesus says, listen to this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you catch that last piece? For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Or another way to say it, your heart will go in the direction of that which you cherish the most. For Jesus, the issue is your heart. This is a competition for your heart. For your love, for your devotion. And wealth appears to be the main competitor for your heart. Now just for clarification, it's not wrong to have wealth. There are good, godly people who have a lot of wealth. Wealth is not the problem. The problem is the love of wealth. A heart devoted to wealth. A passion 
for wealth, a craving for wealth. For when that happens, it no longer becomes a case where we have wealth. Rather, it is wealth that has us. It will control us. It will drive us. It will master us. And we will serve it. Our hearts will no longer be focused on God and the things above. Instead, our hearts will be focused on this earth and the excessive desire for more. More. And that describes greed. Greed. That's a word we don't hear much anymore. Greed. But I think that is the root attitude behind this eighth commandment. Greed. The selfish desire for more. With little to no regard for others. Essentially, it's possessions over people. And it's greed that says what's yours is mine and I will take it. Okay? What's yours is mine and I will take it. But it's also greed that says what's mine is mine. And I will keep it. Greed is always self-centered. It's never satisfied. It's always hungry for more. And ultimately, it will cost you more than you know. Do you know how an Eskimo catches a wolf? Anybody? Let me tell you. The Eskimo coats his knife, his knife blade, with animal blood and allows it to freeze. He then adds layer upon layer of blood until the frozen blood completely conceals the blade. The hunter next fixes the knife in the ground with the blade up. A wolf smells the frozen blood. And when he discovers the bait, he licks it. Tasting the frozen blood. He licks faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. In his mad craving for blood, he does not notice 
the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his tongue. Nor does he recognize the moment when his insatiable appetite begins to be satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Sorry for the gory story. But that's the problem with greed. It's never satisfied. And it will cost you more than you know. And more importantly, it leads you to live a life as if God doesn't matter and can't be trusted. When God told his people, you shall not steal. When God told his people this, he did so as their provider. He was daily providing for them. And to keep this commandment is to recognize that ultimately everything belongs to God. He owns it all. And we can trust Him to meet our needs. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. This passage tells us there are three ways to gain wealth. Three ways. Work hard for it. Have it given to you. Or steal it. And we know stealing is wrong. In this verse, Paul also gives us the purpose for wealth. With the words, so that. So that is a purpose statement. So that. We gain wealth so that we can share it with those in need. The greater purpose for wealth is generosity. And generosity is the complete opposite of greed. Sharing is the opposite of Stealing. And Paul is telling us the best way to cure greed and to battle our desire to take and to keep is to give. We are to be givers, not takers, which is consistent with the nature of God who freely gives to us.
Generosity is a way we follow the example of Christ. And it's a way to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if generosity is too hard for you, then I might suggest you are holding too tight to the things of this world that we already know will not last. And one last thing I want to say. Generosity is not God's way of raising money. He already owns it all, right? Generosity is not God's way of raising money. But it is God's way of raising his children. It's his way of raising his children who have their hearts set toward him and their focus on his kingdom and the things above. George W. Truett, a well-known pastor and theologian, was invited to, to dinner in the home of a very wealthy man in Texas. After the meal, the host led him to a place where they could get a good view of the surrounding area. Pointing to the oil wells punctuating the landscape, he boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. Looking in the opposite direction, at his sprawling fields of grain, he said, that's all mine. Turning east toward huge herds of cattle, he bragged, they're all mine. Then pointing to the west at a beautiful forest, he exclaimed, that too is all mine. He paused, expecting Dr. Truett to compliment him on his great success. Truett, however, placed one hand on the man's shoulder and pointing heavenward with the other simply said, how much do you have in that direction? How much do you have in that direction? The man hung his head and confessed, I never thought of that. Jesus wants us to think about that. Our focus is heaven bound. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together in your word. I thank you, Father, for a word that is, that is convicting. And Father, I must confess, so many times I've had my heart set on the things of this world. And have wanted more, and more, and more. Father, forgive me for taking my eyes off of you. Forgive me for, for not seeking your will and your kingdom, but rather seeking my own will and my own kingdom. A kingdom that will fade away. 
Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Father, I pray that you give us a heart that loves you, that is devoted to you, that craves you, that is passionate about you. And allow everything else to fall by the wayside. Father, help us to keep wealth in a proper perspective. Help us, Father, to allow the wealth you provide to serve us and to serve you. And not let us serve it. Thank you, Father, for being our Lord. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to keep our hearts and our eyes fixed on him. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I was uh, thinking this week, actually about another story, and I I almost used it, but it was so far out of context I didn't. You, you know the story of the of the of the, the Samaritan, right? The story goes like this: there was a, there was a man who was walking down a road apparently, and some robbers came out, some thieves came out, and they beat him up. They stripped him of everything and threw him along the side of the road. Remember that? And then they leave leaving him for dead. Later, a religious leader, a priest walks by along the road, sees the man, goes to the other side of the road and continues on his trip. Later, a Levite, someone who works in the church, probably just left church, sees the man, goes to the other side, makes, continues on his way. Lastly, a Samaritan shows up, right? Samaritans were considered dogs. Dogs. Lower than dogs. They were hated. And this, this good Samaritan takes this person by the side of the road, presumably a Jew, takes him to a, 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 an inn, a hotel, pays, takes care of it, nurses him, Pays for everything. And although this is a story and not not necessarily about greed, there is a a secondary teaching behind it. You had the robbers, right? The robbers and the thieves, right? What was their attitude? Again, this is just a story. It's just a parable by Jesus. But what was their attitude? What's yours is mine, and I will take it. Right? What's yours is mine, and I will take it. And that's what they did. But then you had the, what? The priest and the Levite. Religious folk. Just came from Jerusalem. Church. And what was their attitude? What's mine is mine, and I will keep it. And they continued on. But then you had the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. And his attitude was, what's mine belongs to God. He owns it all anyway, and I will share it. I will share it. 
That's how we're to be, isn't it? That's, that's the gospel truth. For God so loved the world that he what? Did he keep? Did he, did he take? No, he gave. That's, that's the core of the gospel. He gave. He gave. I mean, it's, just, it's amazing. He gave. And, and, of course, he gave because we deserved it, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> even while we hated him, even while we were still yet in our sin, he gave. That's hard. Oh, my, that's hard. That's hard. That's the God we serve. That's Jesus. He gave. Gave what? Himself. He gave it all. And you and I as Christians, as believers in Christ, are being what? Conformed to the image of Christ. It would be totally contrary for us to take and to keep. We have to be givers, not takers. That's what this Eighth Commandment is about, honestly. Not takers, but givers. I don't know where you're at this morning. I hope the Lord has impressed upon you the need to be a giver and not a taker, a consumer. A lot of consumers. How have the Lord's been dealing? How the Lord's dealing with I just pray that you would just respond to Him in obedience. Just respond to Him. Maybe it's in your chair and just, Lord, I admit I'm a taker, I'm a keeper. I feel entitled. And I want to be a giver. I want to be a giver. Maybe that's the conversation you have with the Lord in your own chair. I'd be happy to pray with you as well. Maybe you're looking for a church to join. Would love to have you. Would love to have you. Or maybe you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the one who gave himself for you. Gave himself for you. That's just, again, it's just an amazing, amazing thought. The Bible's very clear. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and there's a penalty for that sin. And that sin, that penalty is death, separation from God separation from God. He wants us to experience eternal life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting eternal life. That's what he wants to give us. 
But our sin, our sin prevents us from experiencing that gift, that eternal life. That's why the Father sent His Son to pay the penalty for our sin. He gave Himself. He paid the penalty. And He asked that we would believe Him, trust Him, repent of our sin, to turn away from being a a taker, turning to Christ. Placing our faith and our trust in Him. That what He says He will do. Who He claimed to be. He absolutely was. God in the flesh. And that we would surrender to Him as Lord. He is my master. Not wealth. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would love to introduce you to Him. I love that opportunity. So again, however the Lord leads you this morning, I just ask you to be obedient. Thank you for coming this morning. I want to just uh, close with uh, with prayer for our offering. Uh, just a reminder, our, our baskets are, are back there near the door. Again, because of, uh, you know, the COVID stuff, we're still not uh, passing, uh, you know, passing around a plate. So we just want to be careful with that. But um, so anyway, I want to pray for our offering and then also for our, our, our fellowship and our food. Uh, afterwards. Father, again, I thank you so much for gathering us here. You're just so good. Thank you, Father, for forgiving, for giving us your Son. Thank you for Jesus, that we might have eternal life because He, He did take, He took our penalty. That's just, a, just an amazing thought. He took our penalty and then gave us eternal life. What an exchange! What an exchange! He took, our, he took our sin and gave us eternal life. Thank you, Father, for that. Father, I pray, Lord, for our offering and our, our this morning. Lord, uh, bless the offering and tithes and gifts that we, we bring in this morning. Father, help us as a church to use your money wisely. You do own it all. Father, help us to be generous. Help us to be loving with, with your money. Uh, bless, Father, the, the giver and the gift. And Father, for our fellowship afterwards, Father, I pray that it would be a sweet time together. Uh, bless those who prepared and brought food. Bless, bless the food to our bodies, Father. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, you bring us back safely uh, next week. Again, may you be honored and glorified in how we live our lives, what we say, what we do. I pray, Lord, you be honored, you be magnified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.